Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 570-something of them now. So if this is new to you and you would like to check out some of the previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there is a PayPal button on every page of the site, and there's also a page that explains other alternatives if you don't want to use PayPal. My guest today is Dean Radin. I had Dean on the show about three years ago, and I just listened this week to the conversation we had then. And <laughs> I had a sort of a funny thing that often happens to me when I listen to old interviews. I think, God, am I losing my touch? This was such a good conversation. Or am I going to be able to do a, you know, one half as good th- this next time? So we'll see what happens. Hopefully I will. And uh, it's pretty easy with Dean because he speaks very eloquently. Let me just read his bio first. Dean is the uh, chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and a distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned a BS in electrical engineering, magna cum laude, with honors in physics, and then an MS in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Before joining the research staff of the Institute of Noetic Sciences in 2001. Dean worked at AT AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and Stanford Research Institute International. He has given over 500 talks and interviews worldwide, and he is author and co-author of hundreds of scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, two technical books, and four popular books translated so far into 15 foreign languages. And those books are The Conscious Universe, 1997, Entangled Minds, 2006, Supernormal, 2013, which is, I think, the focus of our last conversation, and Real Magic, 2018, which I just read. And you said in that last interview, Dean, that you had envisioned a trilogy, and then this idea for the Real Magic came up and uh, Real Magic book, and we were wondering what the word for a four-book set is, and I just looked it up. It's called a tetralogy. You've written a tetralogy. I thought it might be a good way to start to just sort of trace your thinking over the last couple of decades, why you wrote these books, and in a nutshell, what is in them. And then we'll spend most of our time talking about the things that you write about in your latest book, Real Magic. The four books will probably turn into five okay. and six. I'm going to have to, look to up figure what out those what words, words are. are. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of four as a quartet, but of course, that's, that's a... because they used to play the violin. The origin of this is uh, when I was at Princeton, I had enough time and a research assistant to help me start looking at the literature in parapsychology and apply what was then somewhat new method of meta-analysis to see if the studies that people reported were independently repeatable. And why That's, were you interested in parapsychology as an engineering student and an aspiring classical violinist? What drew you into parapsychology? Who is not interested in psychic phenomena? And so when you look, for example, in our fiction and our televisions and movies, 
the theme of psychic phenomena is oftentimes devolves into horror, but nevertheless, it is a major theme that is used again and again because it attracts people. So I'm no different than anybody else. I used to read a lot of, of stories, uh, fairy tales, uh, stories of the Eastern masters. All of these, what is somewhere between fiction and mythology and nonfiction is, is, is obsessing almost over these kinds of special abilities. So I don't remember exactly when I became interested in this, but it was probably my early teenage years where I discovered that there, this was a thing. And in my later teen years, I discovered that there was a branch of science that was trying to figure out whether or not these stories could possibly be real. That's where I discovered that there was parapsychology as a discipline. So long before I went to college, I was already reading most of the literature that was available. But you you learn very quickly in college that nobody in the academic world seems to have any interest in this. So it was a uh, an advocation for a long time until I figured out a way of being a scientist and actually working in this field. Were you also doing some... Um something to bring about the experience of this stuff as opposed to just reading about it? Were you meditating or going to seances or taking psychedelics or, you know, exploring the experiential track? No one in my family and and neither myself had ever reported anything psychic. But I still felt intuitively in some way that this this was real. I don't know why, but that's, that's simply what I felt. So... I started meditating in 1970 as part of uh, TM on campus, and I learned very quickly that uh, at least your subjective sense of reality can change very quickly. And it was actually it was frightening because uh, even though I was, I was warned that you might have some distortions of perception and things of that sort, I had never taken any psychedelics to this day. I haven't, unless you include marijuana, but that's not really psychedelic. I never felt that I, I needed it. My own sense of reality is already somewhere out in outer space anyway. <laughs> Why was it frightening when you learned to meditate? It was frightening because I was getting such strong visual distortions and temporal distortions, things moving and looking much stranger and slower typically than, than I knew that they were. And at the time, the checkers were uh, people who had learned TM two weeks before I did. And so I didn't get much satisfaction from them as to what was going on. And it, it was frightening. So I dropped it for a couple of years. Yeah. Checkers, by the way, were people, there was a checking procedure where you could sit with a person and check their meditation to see if they were doing it correctly. And like Dean said, I mean, I, I was a checker myself <laughs> there um, for a while. And uh, you, know, you basically had a, a memorized script that you went through based, based upon what the person said. And if somebody had started having far out experiences like Dean is suggesting it, you might've felt a little out of your depth dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so since I didn't get any confidence that they, they knew what they were talking about, or at least that they were following the script and it didn't include my experience, I decided I don't, I don't want this right now. I'm trying to be in school and play the violin and so on. Uh, so I, over the years, though, I've I've continued to practice TM, but have gravitated more towards a kind of vanilla version of Vipassana. So that works for me. Yeah, it, it, sure. it produces the the calm, the the inner stillness that I like, but without much of the of the distortions 
that I get with some of the other methods. So do you still get distortions uh, if you do TM? Um, I'm curious about that. I haven't tried to go back there. Uh, I kind of suspect now that I would not because it was just it was just so, so such an unusual state for me to be in. And I was dropping into it very quickly, maybe too quickly. Yeah, you can go pretty deep pr- pretty quick. Obviously, all these things work themselves out over time with integration and stabilization. But, um, you know, there are all sorts of experiences, many of which you actually talk about in your Real Magic book, which meditators have, not only TM meditators, but other kinds. Uh, you know, you might start seeing subtle beings or you might... Uh, I don't know, feel yourself becoming vast, you know, and just sort of filling all the universe or some such thing. And this can be a little freaky, I guess, if you aren't deeply convinced that something good is happening. Or even told that this is a guidepost along the way. Yeah. All that, all that somebody needed to say in retrospect was, oh, okay, this, these sorts of things happen for a while and then it'll fade away and you'll go, you'll get past it. But the kinds of distortions I'm talking about are essentially that the, the, the world is breathing as I'm breathing. So if I'm walking down a corridor and I, I take an in-breath, I can see it expand and then contract along with my breathing. And that's not supposed to be the way that a corridor looks. And it was consistent enough that I could make it happen. And I decided this, I, I, I don't even, I don't know what this is, but I don't like it too much. Yeah. And, and so I stopped. That's fascinating. There is that saying that in unity consciousness, we see the world in terms of the self, but that usually means we see it as pure consciousness, its essential nature. It's not like we see it with a nose and eyes and, you know, breathing and sweating or you know, whatever. So that, that is interesting. If I had been your checker, so to speak, back in those days, I don't think I would have been overly concerned. And I might have repeated a phrase that I heard Marshy say a thousand times, which is something good is happening. You know, don't over meditate. Be sure to engage in plenty of vigorous activity afterwards to kind of stabilize and, and integrate. But anyway, we won't dwell on this at great length. Yeah, but that, that, Just that phrase alone, that would have helped a lot. Yeah. Because at the time in college, every other person was using LSD or something. And I, I, I was imagining at the time that uh, maybe one of my roommates had slipped something into a drink I had or <laughs> something in the air. And yeah. I just, I, I didn't know. So that, that was the freak out. Yeah. Part. And that is, that brings up a good point, which we'll just touch upon briefly, which is that on the spiritual path, knowledge is as important as experience. The two have to go hand in hand. Too much knowledge without experience, and you can mistake an intellectual understanding for actual realization. But profound experiences without some reassurance or without some understanding of what's happening can throw you off the path. You can, you can give up the whole thing because you get scared. So right. both go hand in hand. Right. And actually, I find the same thing I hear pretty often from people who may have had some psychic experiences and the reason why they, they're attracted to my work and the work of my colleagues is because we're providing a scientific way of looking at those phenomena, which is not subjective anymore. It's all objective, and people feel comforted by it because yeah. their internal concern is similar to mine. Like, am I going crazy or not? <laughs> well, well, no, that's, that's part of this particular path. And likewise, if we can show that telepathy exists in the, in the laboratory, then somebody who's having those impressions will feel, oh, okay. That's the thing. Yeah. We will probably get into this later, and I think we touched upon it in the last interview, but we could imagine a society in which all these latent abilities 
were the norm rather than the rare exception. And if you said to your friend, hey, you know, I just experienced such and such, he'd shrug and say, big deal. You know, I mean, you know, I have that every day. It's just that when things are unusual, that there's no social acknowledgement or reinforcement or reassurance. So we, we feel like an oddball and others regard us as, as an oddball. And heavily culturally biased as well. So if you have these experiences in modern day United States, uh, and then you tell exactly the same experiences in modern day India, well, totally different responses. <laughs> I know in India, they'd start touching your feet or something. All right. So let's uh, skip through the books a little bit. So you, you wrote this sequence of books and I suppose each one, it was the next horizon of your interest that needed to be explored and, and explained to the public. How'd the evolution go? So the first book was The Conscious Universe. I, I wrote about 80% of that when I was at Princeton. And it was addressing a question, which I heard a lot, even including among my colleagues at, at Princeton. They said, well, you know, I don't know if I believe this experiment or that experiment because the currency of truth in science is independent repeatability. Well, I had read enough of the literature to know that there was lots of independent repeatable experiments, but at the time, there were very few meta-analyses that were actually published. So I decided to write a book because I couldn't find one that had done this before, which collected the various meta-analyses that were available at that time. And in the process, of course, I had to explain what meta-analysis is and how science is done and all the rest of it. I had to like fill in the context of why we do these kinds of analyses and what they mean and so on. And so, meta-analysis uh, is just a, a sort of a summation of all the studies that have, done, that have been done in a particular thing, right? Yeah, meta, meta sometimes is an echo of the original noun. So a meta-analysis is an analysis of analyses. I see, right. So you're integrating knowledge from many different experiments. So if 100 studies have been done on Vipassana or something, a meta-analysis will congeal all the results of all those studies and, and, you know, see what the commonality is. Right. And answer questions like, is this actually an effect? Is there a real effect going on? Is it independently repeatable? What is the quality of the studies? All of these kinds of issues. And meta-analysis over the past 20 years or so since I wrote that book has continued to become more and more sophisticated. So there's lots of methods that could be applied to this now, and my colleagues and I are continuing to do that. So that's the conscious universe, is basically presenting a case for evidence in the modern vein. And were, were you saying in that book that the universe is conscious? That is one of the implications that you come out with. It was not actually my choice for the title of the book. It was my editor's choice. But I think he, he nailed it because once you get the notion that consciousness is, is bigger than three pounds of tissue inside your head, you immediately can just logically say, well, where does it end? Where did it start and where did it end? Well, it doesn't. It's like there somehow. It's fundamental in the universe. So the idea of the, of the universe itself being conscious is not that surprising. Perhaps we can touch upon that later, too. That's, it's an interesting topic, panpsychism versus panentheism versus materialism and all, all that. So you cover that nicely towards the end yeah. of your, your most recent book. Okay, so the next one was entitled Entangled Minds. Right. So Entangled Minds is about the physics of these phenomena. Entanglement is referring to quantum entanglement, which of course is, is a, uh, one of the strange aspects of quantum mechanics. And it came about because 
uh, one of the questions that people always ask after listening to the evidence is, well, then how do you explain this? Scientists in particular will say, the evidence looks good, but I think it's impossible because it doesn't match what we know about the nature of the physical world. And I would respond by saying, yeah, it actually does not match what we know about the physical world in the 17th century. (laughs) But we've gone a little bit past now. And I don't propose that quantum mechanics explains consciousness or explains psychic ability. Rather, what I say is that our more sophisticated understanding of the physical world allows for phenomena that are non-local. And so if you were to give it a description of what's the commonality in all of the psychic phenomena, it's that somehow our awareness transcends space and time. So transcending space and time is, in, in, a, in a rough sense, what is meant by non-locality in physics. And so I said, well, let's look a little more deeply at the reality that is painted by quantum mechanics and see if that is in fact compatible with what we, the little that we know about psychic phenomena. And the answer is, yeah, there's a very close relationship there. And it is not as simple as some physicists who simply dismiss it by saying, you're taking one mystery and explaining another mystery with it. And I would say, no, the two mysteries are so close that I'm guessing that they're the same. So quantum mechanics is a better description of the physical world and experiential sense of the physical world then would be exactly like what we're seeing in quantum mechanics. Things are connected through time and space. And in addition, the other thing about quantum mechanics, which is quite different from classical mechanics, is that observation makes a difference. You observe a photon, it does not behaving the same way as if you don't observe it. Both of those are, are then related to perceptual psychic abilities and psychokinetic effects. And so I wrote that book in 2006, I think I published that. And the evidence has continually improved because at the time, the notion that quantum mechanics was relevant to the understanding of biology was pretty controversial. It's not so controversial anymore. We're getting closer and closer to the idea, which I predict will eventually become mainstream, which is that the brain is not only a quantum object, but it behaves as a quantum object. We might be 10 years away from that becoming a thing. When it it does happen, then it'll make a very plausible case as to why sometimes we get impressions about things that are distant in space or time, because that's what non-locality is all about. Please elaborate a little bit on the phrase quantum object that could use a little explanation. Quantum mechanics is a better description of the physical world in all respects. And from that perspective, when you talk about classical mechanics, classical physics, that is seen as a special case. So classical physics is like a a little bubble that describes things that are kind of at the human scale. Quantum mechanics is larger in the sense that it can describe everything that you see in classical mechanics, but a lot more. Things happening at the, the scale of the very small, the very cold, and so on. It's a different realm of physical reality. So Classical mechanics is smaller. So the neuroscientists today assume that the brain is a completely classical object. It's behaving like a classical object. And one of the consequences of that is that in principle, given our understanding of the brain today, you could create a network of tin cans connected by strings that in principle, if it was enough tin cans and enough strings, 
connected in a complicated enough way, then the tin can network would become conscious. That's a logical inference based on neuroscience today. I don't know too many people who would actually expect that it would become conscious, but nevertheless, that's what you can project out of neuroscience today. Well, except that tin cans and and strings are not made of the stuff that neurons are made of. And so even if you had the whole earth covered in tin cans and strings, it would still just be a bunch of tin cans and strings. Wouldn't have all the beautiful chemistry and all the microtubules and all that stuff that neurons have. Right. But still all of that, everything you just mentioned, with the possible exception of microtubules, is classical physics. And so from a a classical physics perspective, you're talking about like Tononi's vision of uh, information. You combine information in certain ways and somehow it gives rise to consciousness. Well, you can do that. You can create an information network with tin cans and strings, in which case, if it was complex enough, then Tononi would say, and he's mainstream in, in this domain, it should give rise to consciousness. Or it may be a, a less comprehensive version of it would give rise to a little bit less consciousness. So maybe like, like what a mouse has. But we don't, you know, I don't think many people would agree that that would happen. So all they would say then is like yourself, you're saying you need a more complex biochemical reaction. It's still classical. So you need to expand out into the realm. And the moment you do expand into the quantum mechanics, you're now looking at a world that is very different. It's holistic. It's connected non-locally. It has all kinds of structures involved with it, which are very different than classical mechanics. So when you say the brain is a quantum object, what you're saying, I think, is that the brain is capable of interfacing with the quantum field or or, a very subtle level of nature's mechanics. Is that correct? No. A quantum object means that if our best description of physical reality is quantum mechanics, as it is today, then everything, any object at all, is better described in a quantum sense than as a classical sense. In many cases, though, if you if you had some kind of an object, so here's my here's my iPhone. So this is a quantum object. It behaves in classical ways, except the electronics actually do require quantum mechanics to work. But the hunk of stuff is is better described as quantum mechanical. It'd be extremely difficult to describe it that way, but given that it's our best theory about the way that the physical world works. It's a quantum object. The question, though, is if the brain is not only the brain, but the brain and body are all quantum objects, does it behave that way? That's the important question. And so that's why I brought up the idea of quantum biology, because up until maybe 10 to 15 years ago, the response to the notion that the brain would behave in a quantum way was dismissed because the brain is too hot and it's too wet and you can't sustain quantum coherence for very long and all those arguments. But with the rise of quantum biology, we see that actually living systems do sustain quantum mechanics. And it's even important in some things like photosynthesis. So the likelihood then that the brain, which has elements of it working down at the quantum scale, ions and microtubules and that sort of thing, the idea that it is not behaving in some way as a quantum object, I think is no longer tenable. I think it actually does. And so what I'm, what I'm building here then is a plausibility case. Historically speaking, our notion of what we mean by material is drastically changed and it will continue to change. And at some point, what we are currently calling spiritual and words like that 
is going to merge with what we call physical because our, our notions of it has, have so radically changed over time and will and we'll continue to do so. Good. So we could call this pen a quantum object too, I suppose, by the way you're sure. using the word. Everything's yep. a quantum object, which means that the reality of everything in the universe has its quantum mechanical level of functioning, which is not too relevant if we're actually designing a pen or designing a bridge or something like that. There we want more chemical and Newtonian principles at play, right? Right. But when it comes to the brain, the whole notion of quantum mechanics becomes extremely relevant because of the kinds of things you and I are going to be talking about today. The brain is able to allow or result in. Right. So I would say that it is probably true that the majority of the brain operates as a classical instrument, if we want to use that term. That, this is what the neurosciences keep showing us. As they get better and better, it shows that the, the brain is an information processing system. It's extremely complicated, but the methods that are being used to understand it at this point are classical. We're showing connectomes. We're looking at genetic influences, all of that stuff. It works. We're not going to throw any of that away. The question is, is that all it is? And what I'm proposing is, no, it actually does have some quantum elements to it. And it could be that those aspects of the physical brain itself, which are no longer particulate-like, they're more like quantum wave-like and wave potential. And it's that portion of the brain and the body which are not located here. So we're partially here. We're partially out there everywhere, both at the same time. Yeah, across the universe. If I were to define the brain as a, an interface, the way a radio is an interface with the electromagnetic field, but an interface with something deeper than the electromagnetic field, and also an interface with what we might call the cloud, to use a computer term, wherein a lot of our memories and experiences are stored in a non-physical space of some kind, which would account for remembering past lives, you know, somehow those impressions get carried over from, from one life to the next. Would you be comfortable with that explanation? And can you embellish upon it a bit? Yeah, I would be comfortable with that. The notion that all memory and experience is recorded somewhere, I guess, it's not entirely Maybe not clear all, to me. but it's like with your computer, for instance, you know, you can save a lot of stuff right on the computer, but you can also have it backed up to the cloud or put it on Google Drive or One One Drive or one of those things, and uh, so it's it can be a both and kind of arrangement. But then, who who decides what goes where? Well, that's a good question. In the case of your computer, you decide whether you want to put it locally or, or back it up or share it or save it to the cloud. But in the case of the way our brain functions, maybe there's some kind of more mm, cosmic mechanics at work that determine what gets stored in a non-physical space and, and what gets stored in our actual neurons, if that's what neurons actually do. Of course, they can't find memories in neurons. They don't know how they're stored. Right. So you mentioned cosmic mechanics. So we're currently at quantum mechanics. At some point, as, as we keep advancing our, our understanding of physicality, there'll be something maybe called cosmic mechanics, which will provide a, yet a, a greater expansion of our understanding. So we're still nowhere near there, or maybe we are. It could be right around the corner. It's a question I wouldn't know how to answer at this point. Could there be the equivalent of an Akashic record or something like that out there that is storing bits and pieces of experience? 
And of course, um, there have been people around for thousands of years who would uh, answer that question affirmatively, and you know, based on their own experience. So it's not it's not like we're discovering anything new here. But what you're trying to do is take this ancient esoteric wisdom and apply scientific principles to it, scientific experimentation, and bring it into the public understanding rather than some obscure esoteric realm. Right. In the process of doing that, it becomes very limited. I can speculate all day about the Akashic Record and how reincarnation works and all that, but I feel much more comfortable talking about things that we can test in the laboratory because then you can kind of grab onto it and, and sort of shake it, whereas for the rest of all of the, the big questions about metaphysics, I don't have any answer to that other than pure speculation. So, I mean, I'm happy to speculate along with anybody else, but I, as I said, I feel more comfortable trying to do something with it. Yeah, good. The third book, Supernormal. After talking about the physics of this little bit, and people still asking then, well, I don't know, maybe maybe it's quantum mechanics, maybe it isn't, but... Uh, how how else can we understand these kinds of phenomena? So I had to, to step back, and since I had read a lot about Eastern philosophy and some in Western philosophy, I decided to uh, look at other worldviews that have dealt with the same kinds of phenomena, because it goes back to shamanism, and, and then it takes many different forms that we call esoteric. So I decided to tackle the Eastern esoteric traditions first, primarily through yoga, the yoga sutras, because the yoga sutras are by Patanjali are particularly useful because his, his book on classical yoga talks specifically about the cities, about the special abilities that come about. And there's a pretty strong overlap then between elementary psychic abilities and the cities, elementary cities. So This is then a book that I I thought might appeal to people who are getting into yoga and meditation because that's becoming something now. And yet many people doing it would perceive yoga in particular as a kind of spiritualized aerobics that you you stretch for enlightenment or something. And and so I I knew that from a classical perspective, the, the body side of yoga was important, but that really wasn't it. It was a lot more than that. So that's what was the motivation for writing that book. Yeah, sometimes the stretching bit is what gets people into it initially, and then they begin to wake up to deeper possibilities. Yeah, what was also interesting to me, and it's still true today, but to a lesser extent, uh, is the resistance from uh, some religious people who view stretching as the work of the devil. Which, uh, I mean, I was just floored with that when I was starting to read about what some of the preachers were saying, we can't do yoga in the schools because stretching is the work of the devil. Well, they see it as a Trojan (laughs) horse, you know, that first they're going to show you these nice little yogic stretches, but then they're really going to introduce Hinduism to you once they've got you, you know, got you in there. Yeah, no, I understand that argument, but it it was just the, the, this notion of a slippery slope that, uh, really? Uh, you're touching your toes is <laughs> opening a door to the devil. So, anyway. uh, righty. <laughs> okay, so on that note, Real Magic, your most recent book. Let's, let's get into that. How would you define the word magic in a nutshell? It's uh, not Harry Potter, and it's not Harry Houdini. It's the other magic. I define it in the book as 
an esoteric practice. And the analogy I use is that technology is to the scientific worldview as magic is to the esoteric worldview. It's an application of your view of reality. So it falls into three general classes. There's divination, which is perception through space and time. That's a magical practice. The stereotype is a woman looking at a crystal ball, but there's many, many different methods that are considered magical practice. The second category is force of will, which is the application of your intention to change something in the physical world. And in a larger sense, you can think of it as destiny engineering. You want to engineer the destiny that you will have. It's like uh, fate manipulation, those kinds of terms. And then the third category is theurgy, which is a, a, a Greek word that means spirits or spirit work, communicating with spirits and having them do things on your behalf if you're lucky and having them eat you if you're not so lucky. <laughs> so in other words, magic means things that go outside of the conventional worldview, the worldview that scientists would be comfortable in, things that would suggest somehow mechanics of nature that are not conventionally understood, that violate conventional understanding. And in particular, violates a classical worldview. Classical worldview, yeah. Right. If your worldview is of classical physics, which is a refinement of common sense, then magic, psychic phenomena, mysticism, all of that make no sense at all. That's why especially psychologists are fond of saying, academic psychologists anyway, that these kinds of things are literally impossible because it doesn't fit their understanding of the, of the way the world is stuck together. But our modern worldview, which is mostly classical, not all, that's roughly three to 400 years old. And the esoteric worldviews are tens of thousands of years old. So an academic today would, would look back on that history and say, well, we're, we're modern and sophisticated now. Except that we're just as smart as people were back then. A very different way of being in the world. And so I think we're sometimes a little bit too quick to throw things away just because we can't understand it with our particular worldview. You put on different glasses, like an esoteric worldview, and suddenly it all makes sense. Yeah. I can see how scientists would feel that the scientific age, the scientific method was a much needed corrective to a lot of hocus pocus and strangeness that had predominated prior to the advent of science. You know, all kinds of unusual things and people were being burned at the stake for suggesting that stars might be suns like our own and with planets around them. But here's an excerpt from your book. You say, reality viewed through the lens of science is an exceedingly thin slice of the whole shebang. Science is tightly focused on the objective, measurable, physical world. That focus excludes the one and only thing you can ever know for sure, your consciousness, that inner spark of sentience that you call me. And then you say, there are rising trends in science suggesting that what was once called magic is poised to evolve into a new scientific discipline. Yeah, sometimes people will think that uh, my interest in esoteric ideas and law, lore is a regression. Like it, it's a regression to a romantic image of what it was like to live a thousand years ago or so or more. And I have no desire to go backwards in time. The, the average age was 35 before vaccines were developed. 
that there was a lot more physical suffering that went on. Sure. Imagine so, not having a dentist to go through to if your tooth became infected. You know, you could die from it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't have illusions about a romantic past, but uh, I do think that it's important to not dismiss ideas and concepts that have been around for tens of thousands of years. Because uh, as Homo sapiens, we haven't changed that much over that period of time. So you had a lot of smart people who were doing the equivalent of empiricism back then. They didn't have that word, but they would do things that were pragmatically useful. They didn't have time generally to to philosophize about things. They wanted something that worked. So a lot of what comes out of that is superstition. There's almost as much superstition going on today, especially in sports. You see it all the time. If if you don't have your lucky socks, you're not going to play the game. So so we, we haven't evolved that far from uh, from our ancient past in terms of our daily behavior. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the, the development of materialism as a way of understanding reality is so successful that it allows us to do interviews like this and they work pretty good and we could be on other sides of the of the world and still work just as well. So we cannot throw away and should not throw away what we, we have learned. The question is, is this as much as we can know. And so part of the argument in Real Magic is, no, there's, you can expand materialism in a way that includes other assumptions, which maintains all of our textbooks. We don't throw away any textbooks, but we have a new set of assumptions about what's actually happening. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, the uh, the fruits of science are so demonstrable and so obvious. I mean, you know, your iPhone that you just held up or sending people to the moon or this Skype conversation and the, the YouTube that everybody's watching this on. Whereas in your research, for the most part, you're measuring these little teeny tiny deviations from the norm that are only detectable when you've collected a whole lot of data, but they're extremely statistically significant. So I guess people might wonder, how is this ever going to be anything more than a, an oddity or, a, you know, an interesting anomaly. How can it have the kind of impact that technology has had? Somebody could ask the same question about the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah. Why do we spend $10 billion running experiments with trillions upon trillions of collisions in atoms that are breaking apart? Uh, because we're trying to learn something about the nature of the world that we live in. And so they they have huge data sets. They use statistics very heavily, and they're testing various models, and it costs a huge amount of money. So what do we get from the Higgs boson into something I could buy at Kmart? Well, (laughs) it's going to take a while, right? I mean, we're so used to having things, new thing is showing up, and now you can buy it and have a new toy. No, it takes a long time to go from understanding the structure of reality into something which turns into a toy that you can play with. The other way of talking about this then is if somebody had asked Benjamin Franklin, who was playing with sparks after flying a kite in an electrical storm, uh, you know, why were you even interested in that? Well, I doubt that Franklin had any idea that the, the world a few hundred years later would be running on gigawatt electrical networks, but you got to start somewhere. So, the third thing that I answer, my answer to that is that uh, when we do laboratory experiments, they're like any experiment, 
that is done. It's an artificial construct. If we're studying telepathy in the laboratory, it has to be under the conditions that we're defining. So we can exclude uh, frailties and fraud and flaws and all of that. And when you do that, you start chopping away the way that the experience manifests in the real world and you squish it into something that you can capture in the laboratory. This is how all experiments work. So I would say that uh, psychic phenomena as they occur spontaneously to people in the real world can be life transforming. They're big. In the laboratory, they get squished and and it's an artificial construct where I say, I want you to be psychic in this way right now, which for example, like a precognition test, I want you to see this thing that's going to happen five seconds from now, not 200 years from now and not backwards in time, not even the present, but this very specific thing. Well, it's astonishing then that people can do that. So how are you excluding the entire eternity to just get the thing that's five five seconds in the future? Somehow we can do that. And so what I take from, from the lab studies, which it's true, they're generally pretty small magnitude effects. You need a lot of data, a lot of statistics and so on. It's showing us what is real. And so from the what is real into the toy you buy at Kmart, that could be 100 years. It took 300 years or I don't know, some number of centuries from Benjamin Franklin to today's modern networks, but with enough time and effort, we get there. Yeah. I can think of a fourth thing, which is that in many respects, the world is a mess. Humanity's continuation is not assured. There are a number of climatologists who feel like we might go extinct in the coming century. And then we have any number of things. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and... uh, Fukushima, they're trying to decide what to do with all the radioactive water. They, there's too much of it, and they, they're probably going to have to dump it into the ocean, and there's no no way they're ever going to put a cap on that thing. And there are hundreds of nuclear power plants around the world that could melt down under the right circumstances. And, you know, it could go on and on and on about all the things that are wrong with the world. And I would suggest, maybe you would agree with me, that if most of the people in the world or a significant percentage of them had really unfolded their full potential, which means becoming experientially grounded in the ultimate reality of consciousness, that the entire world would be transformed just as much as, if not more than, the life of an individual is transformed when when they have that experience, as, as yours and my life have been transformed. So what you're actually studying here, and you're trying to limit yourself to the things you can actually measure, could be of the greatest significance if it helps to shift collective understanding of consciousness as being the most important thing one can explore and experience. Yes, I like that so much. I'm going to have to use that in the future. (laughs) Yeah, Okay. That's a very good answer. Yeah, it's something that if given enough time, I might have actually come up with myself, (laughs) but you stated it very nicely. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. We're studying the essence of not only who we are, but probably the essence of the universe at large. So what what else could be more exciting? You know, our friend Alex Sikaris, who does the Skeptico podcast, he wrote a book called Why Science is Wrong About Just About Everything or something like that. And I don't necessarily agree with him. It seems like science is right about a lot of things that it studies, but maybe he meant that in the sense that if things aren't oriented properly, and I'll show a chart 
I'm showing the one, the pyramid with consciousness at the mm -hmm. top. If consciousness is understood to be the product of physics, then chemistry, then biology, then psychology, then mind, then finally it, it emerges, consciousness, as opposed to this chart, where consciousness is fundamental, then physics, chemistry, biology, blah, blah. If science is wrong about what its actual ultimate foundation is, then perhaps in some sense it is wrong about everything else that it lays its hands on. There's a sort of a misguided orientation where we try to do something to help ourselves and it has all these unintended consequences because we don't have the full picture. Yeah, the way I would put it is that from a materialistic worldview, everything's made out of matter and maybe energy. That's a nihilistic worldview. It's a worldview without any, any meaning or purpose. Everything ultimately is random. And what you see then that happens for students in particular who start to absorb that idea is everything is pointless. There's no reason for doing anything. Why do I need to study? Why do I need to go to school? That Everything is going to fall apart and die. So why do anything? So that that is the prevailing worldview today, whether it's discussed in those terms or not. And so the alternative worldview, the one where you put consciousness at the bottom, not only is supported by the tens of thousands of years of the esoteric worldview, but it brings meaning and perhaps purpose back into our model of reality. And I think what's very important about the, the pyramid thing that I, I was using as a way of a hierarchy of showing how disciplines stick together is that each one of the, of the slices of reality that we've carved up you can take uh, Physics 101 and Chemistry 101, all these textbooks. They're completely correct. There's nothing wrong with what is said in there. But they oftentimes will have an implicit assumption that this really does bubble up out of physics. And out of physics, that, that's, like, that's the basis of everything, which is based on nothing. It's like purely random. So by putting this into... Uh, not quite an idealistic viewpoint, but somewhere in that direction where you put consciousness as fundamental. What that says is materialism is a special case of a way of perceiving reality. It's a special case which is predicated on the physical world as we understand it right now. But that's not the whole world. In fact, when you, you look at the, the theories of everything that are very popular in physics, any theory of everything that does not take into account consciousness is not a theory of everything. It's a theory of a small bit of everything, but it's not portrayed in that way. So the reason why it's often presented as though it understands everything is purely based in materialism as a, as a, as a philosophical concept. But, but if it excludes consciousness, then that can't be it. That reminds me of another point, which is that... Um knowledge is so voluminous now and as you progress in your study of a particular field you have to specialize more and more precisely because you just can't learn it all you know you have mm -hmm. to sort of zero in on a very specific thing and so in a sense the the ignorance increases more than the knowledge you know the more you know the more you realize how little you know but if consciousness is the foundation then we could say that that's the sort of the ultimate repository of of all knowledge or home of all knowledge so if you can capture that in your awareness, then we could say that you derive the fulfillment that would be had were you to somehow know everything without actually having to know everything, which is an impossibility for a human being. And consciousness may or may not have much to do with knowledge per se. 
So if consciousness, the way I think of it usually is the state of being aware, it's awareness, subjective awareness. So that may be like a background. It's, it's a background state on which things reside. Knowledge is so closely associated with language, with our, the way our senses work, that it's emerging, I think. It emerges out of this awareness in the same way that elementary particles might emerge. And so it's not clear to me that it goes all the way down. In other words, you can reside in a state of pure awareness with nothing else. True. And sages like Ramana, who have resided in a state of pure awareness, don't know everything in a relative sense. But we could argue that they have achieved the goal of knowing things or the goal of doing anything, which is happiness or fulfillment to an infinite degree. Here's a connection with magic. And it's also true with the cities. So if you want to do it, you want to create a city, you go into samadhi. So let's just imagine that that's resting in pure awareness. But you have to do something in samadhi. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. So you do some yama or you do some other practices. The same thing is true in magic. You call it gnosis. It's the same as samadhi. And from the state of gnosis, you express your will or intention. Or you merge with the object of which you want to gain knowledge. So if you want to gain knowledge about another person, you become the other person, which you can do from that state. You can't do it from an ordinary conscious awareness state. That's where all the the magic happens from the Eastern and Western esoteric traditions. It's about becoming from a state of everything and merging into the object of interest. And then you know it. And according to Patanjali, you can know virtually anything when you are able to function that way. You can know, you can understand the language of animals. You can have knowledge of the cosmic regions. You can, you know, have a, some sort of omniscience. And there's all kinds of different possibilities. He uses the phrase Ritambara Pragya, which means that level of consciousness or intellect which knows only truth. So you can really know that the ultimate truth of anything that you choose to know. Yeah, that would be useful for people in the media. To have. <laughs> yeah. to have, to have like one person you know, really? they, they always have commentators and everything well, let's have our guru commentator yeah. say is this true or not true and then they can tell us it would make the job a lot easier at snopes and politifact and places like that yeah, yeah. a question came in i think i can ask this without it throwing us off the track this is adam from sweden he asks um I have for a long time had the experience that I am nothing, capital N, but I am not really experiencing being everything, even though I understand this truth and have had glimpses of it. Any tips on how to experience this oneness instead of just the emptiness? I wish I knew how to respond to that, but all I will say is that uh, as in the my beginning of meditation and experiencing all kinds of weird things happening, if someone had told me at the time similar to what you just said in response to that, that, oh, that's interesting. You'll eventually go through that. So then you'll start experiencing other things. I suspect that this is probably true in many cases. I've experienced something like the void in my own meditations where it's just black and there's nothing going on. Initially, it was quite scary because you'd feel like you're dying or something, but you persist and then turned into something else. So yeah. the nothingness became nothingness part one, and there's a bunch of other ones. Yeah, that's the answer I would have given. I would just say, you know, keep on trucking. I don't know if that phrase is familiar in Sweden, but there's a Sanskrit, they call it 
shunyavada, which means sort of an orientation of emptiness or nothingness. And that's kind of one flavor of the ultimate reality. But then there's also purnavada, which means fullness. You can sort of get both flavors of it. But I believe that most um, sages we respect have evolved into more of the purnavada aspect, the, the fullness aspect. So if you have an effective spiritual practice, Adam, keep at it. It ain't over. No, it's part of the, of the beauty of it, of there is no bottom to this. And, and if there were a bottom, it's not clear to me that we could experience it in a way that we could then express it. The really deep experiences are ineffable. They can't be expressed, which suggests that it's beyond language. We don't have language that can do a decent job with it yet. That makes it fun. I forget which sage it was who said that, you know, the, the bad news is that you're in free fall forever. The good news is there's no ground. You're not going to go splat. Yeah, that's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah. One of my uh, favorite Ramana Maharshi quotes is somebody asks him, we can work on our own practice, but what about all those other people? And his response is that there are no other yeah, people. Yeah, what other people? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Adam, uh, some people make a big fuss about wanting to be done with seeking, and some teachers say give up the search and all that stuff. And maybe you have reached a point at which you don't feel like you're seeking anymore, but I haven't met anyone yet who has insisted that there has come an end to exploration and adventure and deepening into whatever this is. That There seems to be no end to that, and so that's something that makes life exciting. Yeah. And it's very similar in the, the scientific enterprise at the at the edge of the known. That, as you said before, that the, the more you study any particular topic, the more you begin to realize how much is left to learn. And after a while, you, you can become paralyzed if you take that too deeply, because you know the right questions to ask, and you know that we are not anywhere near smart enough to figure out even how to approach the questions. So fortunately, I like these kinds of puzzles, because otherwise I would have given it up a long time ago. Speaking of paralyzed, you know, what you said a few minutes ago about you go to college and you're taught that um, life is meaningless and mechanistic and this physical reality and the universe is accidental and random and so on. What a depressing and discouraging thing to teach people. I hope that anybody's listening to this and if they feel that way, I hope they look deeper because I never for one second feel that way although there might have been times when I was a teenager when I did for a bit. But it's kind of criminal that, that students are given that orientation by professors. I think you said there's some humorous phrase in your book about how that's the typical perspective of a college sophomore or something. Yeah, it, it is. And people and, commit suicide with that attitude, you know? Yes. And so the, the only alternative we have today, the main alternative, is religion. Because religion does give answers. And then some people will grab onto it really, really hard because who wants to live a meaningless life? So I understand then the, the urge to get pulled into one particular set of beliefs, but I've always been of a skeptical mind. So I, I'm not willing to accept something just because it's written in a book somewhere. I need to have proof. It, and proof generally is my own experience. And so there's a very close relationship between experience an experiment. An experiment is just a formalized way of having an experience. That's how I view it. Well, you have a summary of your book at the beginning, chapter by chapter. I thought I would read the key sentence of each chapter and let you expound upon it, and I'll probably have some questions. 
For instance, in chapter two, you say you were so surprised after it dawned on you that you had been studying magic for about four decades without realizing it. What do you mean by that? Because, I mean, for, for decades you've been studying out-of-the-ordinary stuff, psi phenomenon and so on. Maybe you had never associated it with the word magic and the historical use of that word? It's partially because I'm not an anthropologist, so I, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about magical practices. But it's also because a fair amount of, of the time that I've spent looking at this has been in the academic world. And in the academic world, studying psychic phenomena is already very controversial. And if you add on to that, you're studying magic for real, that's an explosive combination. So there's only a certain amount of golden bullets that you have when you're in the academic world. And you don't want to spend them all fighting people off with two controversies. One is more than enough. This is not just my opinion, but even among my colleagues who are doing similar kinds of work on psi phenomena, I think all of them will privately admit that there's this pretty strong overlap between magical practice and psychic phenomena. But we've collectively, most of us have agreed, we're not going to mix it because there's a third arm here as well, which is UFOs. It's even more explosive. And so there's, there's an overlap there, something about some strange thing about consciousness where UFOs seem to be reactive to observation and all kinds of other things, to pull them all together into one, if you're an academic, is a death wish. And so we, we avoid those. Is there some synonym for the word magic that you could have used to would have you know, aroused less um, of a reaction? Or do you have to use that word because that's the word that traditionally has been used for a lot of the things that you're discussing here? Well, I'm not in the academic world anymore, so I decided to use the word that describes exactly what it is. Okay, good. <laughs> it is, it is a, an esoteric practice, and it is magic. Yeah. I also figured if, if I had used a euphemism, even within my domain now, we use euphemisms like anomalous cognition or predictive anticipatory awareness and other terms that are all euphemisms, as remote viewing was a euphemism for clairvoyance. It's a way to get one beat ahead of somebody else's thought process. So it sounds like oh, that, that, that sounds like a science thing, you know, and you, and you kind of bypass. Oh, you're talking about psychic stuff. So I decided I don't want to do that anymore. For one thing, I don't have to answer to anybody and I'm old enough to not want to play that game. Yeah, and I don't think your editor would have let you entitle your book Real Predictive Anticipatory Awareness either. Probably not. <laughs> And I just want to remind people that the reason this whole discussion is relevant to the whole notion of enlightenment and awakening and so on, which is the main theme of BatGap, is that what Dean is doing and has been doing for a long time now, I don't know how many people there are in the world, but you're one of the main ones who are actually producing data and getting it published, which gives some proof that materialistic paradigm does really not define the way the universe works, that there's something deeper going on. And that's what spirituality is all about, that you know, consciousness is fundamental and that's our true nature. We want to realize that and it will have an impact on the way we function in the world. So anybody who's actually practicing any sort of real magic is demonstrating what I just said, that there's a deeper mechanics which human beings are able to tap into and which defies the materialistic paradigm. At the same time, materialism is really, really good. 
like right. you said, it builds yeah. bridges and it gets us to the moon. And Yeah, and so we're talking about a more comprehensive worldview where materialism is in, in the middle somewhere. And like we've said, not only should materialism not be threatened by what you're talking about here, it should be glad because it's going to be um, enriched. Right, especially in science, but in philosophy too, and the, even the average person, we would like to have a better understanding of the nature of reality and our role in it. So if it turns out that materialism is a special case of a worldview that is sort of human-centric, but the universe is a lot bigger than human, well, then I would think that would be of interest to everyone. Yeah. I was encouraged towards the end of your book, you summarize the momentum that this deeper understanding is gaining and how I think between 1940 and 19, what was it, in the year 2000 or something, there were only two published studies, but now there's been this huge snowball of... Yeah, that was probably about the uh, consciousness studies as a discipline. 30 to 40 years ago, there might have been some conferences on consciousness, mostly by philosophers interested in the mind-body problem. There would have been maybe something from an Eastern philosophical perspective as well, but obscure, like only academics would go to these things and not very much was known about it then or for the prior 3,000 years. So from then until now, probably sparked by the psychedelic revolution of the 60s, that started it, but it has continually progressed to the point now where you could have a conference on some aspect of consciousness every week around the world. And more importantly, there are now centers for consciousness study. You can be an academic and devote your career to aspects of it, mostly in the neurosciences, but not exclusively. And, and that shows that uh, within the academic world, which is, of course, already a tiny little bubble, but that bubble is nominally trying to push our understanding of who and what we are um, in a broad sense. Consciousness is now acceptable as a topic. Even when I went to Princeton in, in the early 1980s, I mentioned to one of my uncles who knew that I was going there, he's saying, oh, what are you going to study there? Well, I'm going to be part of a project that is studying the nature of consciousness. He could not understand what I meant. It was this notion that for many people, consciousness is so close to your face that it's like a fish trying to understand water. It doesn't even arise as something that is even studyable. So I had to take a while to figure out how to explain to my uncle what it was that I was doing, and I'm not sure I ever succeeded on that. In a way, he has a point, or he, you know, there is a point, which is that consciousness is not an object, and everything that science studies generally involves the, you know, the perceiver and the mechanics of perception and then the object of perception, but you can't do that with consciousness because you are it. Because <laughs> you can't stand apart from yourself to observe yourself. So what you're really studying are the artifacts or you know effects of people using their consciousness in a certain way or using their subtler aptitudes or abilities in a certain way. I wouldn't say that you or anyone is studying consciousness itself. Right. We put it as studying the capacities of consciousness. That's what we study. And so from those capacities, we begin to get a sense not exactly what awareness is. I mean, it's a little bit like asking, how is it that a, an electron has a charge on it? We don't know. We have descriptions of it. We kind of know how it works. We don't fundamentally know what it is. In fact, in a fundamental sense, anything 
you ask about. Why is it this way and not that way? In most cases, we have no idea. And this is part of what happens when I consider myself a generalist when it comes to to science and scholarship. So I know little bits about lots of different topics. And when you're able to cram it all into your head to try to get a picture of what do we think we understand, you realize it is a tiny, tiny slice of what's actually out there. And a lot of what you can cram in your head is wrong. As we, we see in the history of science, it's just flat out wrong. I get a little annoyed sometimes with uh, people who are chosen as science spokespeople and on TV who are asked questions of which they know nothing, but they're put in a position where they have to give an answer. So they'll give some kind of an answer. And the reality is that nobody is an expert in so many things that they can give a viable answer about anything. So I consider myself an expert in a slice of sci research. And it's the slice that I, I've, I've spent a lot of time on. But even in that domain, that's also a gigantic domain to understand. So one of the reasons why I write books is to, is to, to collect my own thoughts, in a sense. Collect thoughts about areas that are just beyond where I thought I knew something, and then squish it into a book, and then I don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah, I remember an interview in which Sam Harris asked astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson some question about genetic engineering. And Tyson said, oh, we've been doing genetic engineering for thousands of years. And of course, he meant like selective breeding and that kind of thing. But that's not genetic engineering. That's not tinkering with the genome or, you know, with with the DNA or something. So there's a good example of what you just said. And he also, and the two of them were also batting back and forth notions about atheism and the insentience and mechanistic nature of the universe, which I thought was ludicrous. I mean, here are these super smart guys, you know, that everybody respects talking drivel, really. I mean, if if you have a, a deeper perspective on things. What I would like to say for many questions that I get on interviews is, I don't know. And I don't know anybody who knows. But that doesn't go over very well after the 15th time you say that. So I try to give a, the best answer that I know at the time. But internally, I'm I'm having a sensor saying, oh, really? Really believe that? And your opinions haven't changed over time? You can say that. I won't be upset if you say that. Okay. Uh, in fact, it's, it's good to remind oneself of that because we can sound a little smug about how wise we are with our deeper understanding of consciousness and all that. But was it Newton who described his whole life as being a boy on the shore, picking up shells in the face of reality? That's how I feel most of the time. And Einstein talking about the sense of, you know, not losing the sense of awe and wonder when you look out upon the vastness of the universe and contemplate its mysteries and so on. So, you know, many scientists have been mystics, whether they knew it or not. Right. In the next chapter, you you entitled Magical Potpourri, Potpourri of Magical Topics from Popular Culture to the Scholarly Study of Magic, Why Magic is Both Terrific and Terrifying, The Continuing Horrors of Witch Hunts, and Why We Can't Help But Engage in Magical Thinking. Let's talk about those things. That chapter could have turned into individual chapters on each one of those topics, but I I had a, a limit of 200 pages for the whole thing. It was basically trying to describe why people are drawn to concepts of magic. And the easy way to see that, I think I mentioned in that chapter about the amount of money that is made on fiction in books and television and movies. It's gigantic. 
Harry Potter, for example, being one of the most purchased books in history, competing with the Bible, and at the same time, one of the most banned books in history. So it's showing that people are attracted to it, sometimes positively and sometimes negatively. An adult who has lost their child inside would say that it's childish. It's fantasy and wish fulfillment and all that, of which some of it is, sure. But then the question is, just as with mythology, is mythology just purely fiction or is it trying to tell us something? Well, I'm in the the camp with Joseph Campbell on this. Mythology is a pre-scientific way of describing something which is real. So the mythology uh, that we see in comic books and movies and so on, that is telling us something about our actual capacities. Of course, it's embellished because it's fiction, but it's real at the same time. So I think for an adult to forget that, or worse, to deny it, is just kind of sad. Yeah, I think we have a yearning to realize those capacities, realize those potentials, and that's why we're interested in that stuff in the way that romance novels are popular. You know, people yearn for the ideal romance and they're not having one, so they read these novels. You know, so that there's all kinds of unfulfilled things about us. And right. uh, one of them is that we realize that life is a lot more magical than the humdrum reality that, that most of us function in. And, you know, we want to actualize that. One thing that didn't make it into, into that book, because we've only recently completed it, is a question that comes up sometimes uh, from people who are just viciously skeptical about all these things. They've never had such an experience. They don't know anybody who's had an experience like this. They then view it as some kind of pathological wish fulfillment, that sort of thing. And yet there's the other half of the population, actually more than half, who do have experiences like this. Spontaneously, synchronicities, things happen. So a project that we've been running now, uh, it's called SciGenes. We're looking at the genetic basis for people being gravitating towards what I would call psi-blind versus people who are psi-open. They just have these experiences. Genetics have come to the point now where uh, fairly subtle aspects of being human are being explained to some degree by your genetic predispositions, including intelligence, for example, two kinds of intelligence, not your IQ, but whether you tend towards crystalline intelligence or fluid intelligence. Crystalline is somebody who is really, really good with numbers and specifics, whereas fluid intelligence is more creative. There's just as a, a direction on a spectrum. Turns out that there's constellations of genes, hundreds of them, which make up networks which are pointing in one direction or the other. That provides a genetic predisposition to float in one direction or the other. The same appears to be true with psychic phenomena. And so we have identified a uh, genetic sequence on chromosome 7 of DNA, which was the opposite of what we thought originally. We originally thought there's some special gene that makes people psychic superstars, and and we'll find what that is. And so we got people who are psychic from psychic families and controls who are not psychic from non-psychic families and did a, a standard case control study, which is, which is what you do with genetics. We found this difference between the two, but the difference was that uh, it looks like most people who are, quote, average, normal average people, they have capacity for psychic ability. It's these other people 
still a pretty large proportion of the population, we think, maybe 40%, we don't know exactly, who don't have this particular gene. And by not having it, their capacity for having these kinds of experiences is much, much lower than the average person. This is kind of backwards because we're, we're basically saying it looks like everyone can have these experiences except this group of maybe 40% who end up being extremely skeptical because it's not part of their experience and they don't know how to make it part of their experience. And so one of the people working with us is a, uh, a specialist in sociogenetics, which was a discipline I didn't even know existed until he started working with us. And what it's about is looking at the genes of a population and how that orients a population towards certain kinds of beliefs and certain predilections. So he did this analysis and found a very strong correlation. And this is a negative correlation. We were originally saying, well, maybe the Druids have, you know, that portion of of Northern Scotland or Ireland, maybe they have more psychic ability because they have legends about such things. We found the opposite. We found a place that has a deficit of people with psychic talent. From a socio-historical perspective, it turns out to be Christianity. So we're thinking uh, this is Holy Roman Empire plus or minus a couple of countries over time. There's a deficit of this particular genotype, basically. So you mean the geographic birthplace of Christianity? You don't mean Christians around the world in general? No, it's it's like the the birthplace and then high density is going to be near that birthplace. Uh So we're talking about probably Italy, Spain, a few countries around there, which are still heavily Catholic. There's a deficit of this gene, of this sequence. And so in thinking about that, we're trying to, to figure out to get rid of a gene in a population, first of all, takes many generations, but also something has to happen. I mean, evolution does things because there's a need. The need could be that the environment changes or it could be endless wars. It could be all kinds of things. In this case, all we could come up with as a speculation is the Inquisition. Yeah, I was going to say that people were persecuted for displaying anything like this. They were accused of witchcraft and so on. And so those genes were not passed along. So this is the speculation at this point, except that the correlation is pretty strong, which was surprising that we found anything and even more surprising that it's, you know, we will need to do many more studies to confirm it. But as as an inkling as to what we can understand or what we can explore from a genetic point of view, it's, I thought, quite interesting. I wonder if you could take a group of people who didn't have the psychic gene, whatever you're calling it, and um, teach them all to meditate. I wonder if they really wouldn't take to it, or if they did, if it would begin to change their genetics, which, I, as I understand it, are a lot more malleable than, than we once thought. The genes, Or give them the psilocybin DNA. or something if you don't want to wait for meditation to kick in. <laughs> right. So it's unlikely that this one particular sequence, which is an RNA, it's not part of DNA. It's an RNA sequence. So it's, it's probably involved in the expression of epigenetics. It's like a switch. You can turn the switch on or off. So people who have that particular sequence in them, they could switch on and go in that direction. They can become psychic. I think those people will respond to meditation or psychedelics. It'll open that door. For people who don't have the sequence, there may be lots of other sequences that we haven't found yet that would do something similar to that. We don't know yet. But the likelihood that there are biomarkers that we weren't able to detect 30 years ago because we didn't have the the technology yet, I think there are many biomarkers, including regions in the brain, genetics, a whole bunch of other things. And you're right that 
through practice of meditation, the shape of your brain changes, the connectome changes, all sorts of things change as a result. And it might actually open a door for somebody who otherwise it's not part of their experience at all. So I do know somebody just talking to them the other day who said that for most of their adult life, they were absolutely hardcore materialists. They didn't believe in any of this stuff. They would never be attracted to meditation. They started taking psychedelics, a complete flip-flop, totally changed from a materialist to an idealist. And I was completely open to all of this because they got pushed. And it may be that some people would need to be pushed hard. Whereas for others like myself, I kind of always knew that all of this stuff was real without knowing how I knew it. Yeah. I remember Carlos Castaneda's teacher saying that he needed psychedelics because Carlos was such a a dunderhead. But once he had broken through, then uh, he said, don't do them anymore because it's going to have a negative effect. But it Mm -hmm. it can definitely give you a kick in the pants. As a good meditation teacher can do too. Yeah. Right. Especially somebody who knows about Shaktipat and can really do it. They can push you as well. Yeah. A lot of things can do it. This thing we were talking about a few minutes ago about how there seems to be snowballing interest in this kind of thing and then research that suggests that materialism is being overturned and your kind of research. I wonder if we're seeing the beginnings of a significant transformation in society. Because as you know, trace it back anytime, this cent- the previous century from the 40s to the 50s, the 60s to the 70s, there's been such a huge change in so many things social things and technological things and so on. So I wonder wonder if we're on the cusp of a a shift like that in our understanding of consciousness and our experience of it and our facility with the kinds of abilities that you're discussing here. I hope so. Whether we are or not is two ways to think about that kind of societal shift. It could be fluid, where it takes generations and slowly moves, or it could be more fractal, And we come to a bifurcation point and then there's a break. Well, if the the climate scientists and other people paying attention to the world are right, then we might have 10 to 20 years before we reach a bifurcation point. And it either goes all completely downhill or something else happens. And we have the the Arthur C. Clarke book, Childhood's End, occur. What did he say there? Well, the the Childhood's End was children are, are being born who are very different than their parents and who have a vast array of psychic abilities and are much more intelligent and have kind of a hive mind, all these kinds of things, science fiction. The childhood end is talking about an evolutionary jump in Homo sapiens. You look at, at Homo sapiens as a species, we're still pretty much adolescent. We're tribal, tribal monkeys, basically. We're primates who are driven by it. So we are still pretty much hardwired into the kinds of disruptions that we see. It's easy to get people to believe things that are flagrantly not true. Well, their genes are pushing them in that direction to say nothing of their predilections. So that's a very young species. We have won the evolutionary battle against Neanderthals and a number of other pre-human species, probably because of our aggression. So you take the combination of a young species that's highly aggressive, somewhat clever, and does not like to cooperate very much, and you end up with us. And so if you keep going in that direction and you pay attention to what uh, scientists are saying who study things like what's happening on the planet, it's really scary. Like we have 10 years 
in 10 years, it all falls apart. Well, nobody wants to hear that. So it's denied and set aside. But at some point where it really starts to crack, that is the opportunity. Like if enough people make the, the right choice at that time, everything works out well. Maybe it's optimism, but I'd, I'd like to think that the upwelling of consciousness and interest in all these types of things is in direct response to the um, crisis that is coming down on us. It may well be, yes. Yeah, and that hopefully it will be, you know, one of those nick of time things, which is interesting because in a lot of stories like The Lord of the Rings and so on, things just happen in the nick of time. Things just kind of work out and Frodo manages to get to the pit of fire and Gollum bites his finger off and the ring goes in and and then boom, things change. It's sort of like nature doesn't often, well, I'm switching back to the real world, but often we don't get a lot of padding in terms of getting everything neat and tidy and resolved way ahead of time. You know, it's just sort of nick of time. Yeah, it doesn't make for a good story. Yeah. Right? So I have uh, friends of mine who are uh, religious scholars, scholars Mm -hmm. of religion, uh, thinking of Jeff Kripal in particular. Right, I've interviewed who, him. Yeah, so his you know, his notion is that we're writing our story. It's almost literally like some aspect of us or a collective mind is writing a narrative and the narrative becomes us. It's a two-way street. You don't want a story that is just laying everything out in a plotting way. Nobody would watch that. So maybe these perils of Pauline uh, episodes are something that we do collectively because it makes, you know, it's like the spice of life. Yeah, maybe it is. And if, if creation is God's Leela, then, you know, God is enjoying this play and, and making it as uh, dramatic as possible. Yeah. Otherwise you'd get bored. Yeah, you'd get bored. If it's too predictable, then, you know, why do I need to watch this? Here's a question that came in that might take us in a slightly different direction. This is from Wesley in Cottage Grove, Oregon who asks, Dean, can you talk about UFOs in the context of channeling? Are you familiar with the Law of One, also called the raw material? It's a channeled work, channeled by Carla Ruckert in the 1980s, reported to be an ET collective consciousness called Ra. Even if you aren't familiar with that material, Dean, can you speak about the possibility of ET channeling? So I know a little bit about Ra. I'm completely aware of my ignorance about it as well. I'm not a raw <laughs> scholar, let's put it that way. So we, we have a project on channeling at, at our, the institute where I work. And one of the difficulties with it is that most of the information that you get is unverifiable. Because you're, you're getting wisdom, apparently, from extraterrestrial something, which sounds like pearls of wisdom said by some something. But most of the time, in fact, the vast majority of time, you can't do anything with that. So we have specialized more in the study of mediumship because there you're getting information that you can verify about a a deceased person. And so we know the mediums are quite good. Some are, are very good at what they do and they can get real information. In channeling, it's much, much more difficult. The experimental approach we're taking for channeling is if there is in fact an entity which is coming through somebody, let's ask the entity to go through, say, four channelers. First go through channel one, and then continue your story in channel two, and continue it on three and four. And then you can compare what's being said. You can compare whether or not there was an unbroken thread of thought or uh, from what the, what the channels are saying. You can do all kinds of interesting things. You can look, look at the physiology of the channelers 
as something is coming through them before, during, and after. So we're thinking about these kinds of tasks. And it's not really then verifying what the channels say, because we have no way of verifying that. But it is trying to get at the notion that some kind of information is coming through and from an actual entity of some type, an independent entity. So that we can do. But beyond that, I don't know what else to do at this point. I hadn't really heard much about the raw material at all until I interviewed a guy, a young fellow named Aaron Abke, uh, who had been a fundamentalist Christian. I think he went to Oral Roberts University and then he eventually cracked out of there and opened himself up to all kinds of possibilities. But this is some fascinating stuff in that in that material. I'd like to become more familiar with it and perhaps interview somebody at some point. I, I have a friend who is very conversant with it. Let's skip ahead to the Merlin class magicians chapter case studies of some real world people who did stuff that was jaw dropping and that really hundreds and hundreds of people witnessed. Tell us those stories. The reason I wrote that chapter is because it is true that the biggest chapter in that book is all about scientific evidence. And it's uh, talking about experiments that have been done, which are addressing part of the magical practices, things like how you use your intention and the role of attention and that sort of thing. And the results are statistically highly significant, but they're pretty small effects. You ask the question then, well, does this stuff scale up into the world at large? So the uh, the examples I gave, one was uh, St. Joseph and another was D.D. Home, and then a more contemporary guy. St. Joseph is a good case because being a, a Catholic priest who eventually became a saint, there's an enormous amount of material that was kept by the by the Vatican, still at the Vatican, all of the original interviews with witnesses who were describing what he did. When you start having hundreds to thousands of witnesses, even a long time ago, the people involved in being the devil's advocate, which were part of the process that somebody would have to go through in order to become a saint, they took their jobs very seriously because they didn't want to accidentally make somebody a saint who wasn't. So they interviewed lots and lots of lay people who saw him levitate, royalty, kings, princes, a very wide range of people who saw these kinds of remarkable things. What he was mainly known for was levitation, but he also had other other skills, psychic skills. And he was very lucky that he was not caught. He was caught by the Inquisition a number of times, but he got out of it. Why he got out of it is almost as miraculous as levitation because the kinds of things he was doing is very close to our concept of what magic is about. So so that was still quite a while ago. A more contemporary version is D.D. Home, which is spelled Let like Let me just Hume. interject here for a second. Christ said, you know, all these marvelous things that I do, you shall do even greater things. And, you know, he explicitly taught that what the, the cities that he was performing were not unique to him and the other people should be capable of them. And so it's it's kind of ironic that the church has given people such a hard time if they began to display such things. But I think it it's an indication of the deviation from Christ's essential teaching in which we're all thought to be sinners at our core, whereas Christ, I think, taught that we're all divine at our core. If you're a sinner at your core, then why should you be able to levitate? It must, it must be the devil or something. But if you're divine, then you're just accessing or utilizing you know, deeper laws of nature. Right. And the other reason is a sociological reason that if you are the organizer and power of a society, 
you don't want anybody challenging that. And so if you have somebody out there as a miracle man, the people will very quickly start following that person and they won't follow you. So you have two choices. You either kill them or you make them a saint. Because if if the person is a saint, they're still within the body of the thing that you are. And then it's okay. If they're outside of that, that is not acceptable. That is a lot what was going on with the Inquisition. Of course, a lot of other people got caught up in the Inquisition for no good reason, but it's largely a social control program. I think early on we mentioned about witch hunts today, and uh, there are countries in the world where people are still stoned as witches. And again, maybe they have some talents, but in many cases, they're just people who somebody else wants to get rid of, which is a pity. Oh, you're about to mention the second guy. Yeah, Didi Home. Didi Home was in the, the heyday of spiritualism, and in particular physical spiritualism or physical mediumship, where the the uh, the fun of the day was things like table tipping and table levitation and spirit voices and that sort of thing. So what's different about him, as you could imagine, there was money to be made by putting on these shows. So there are lots of people who are doing fake shows, medium mediumship shows, because there weren't movies. And there was no television. So this was something that people would go to just for entertainment uh, and maybe entertainment with a slight thrill to it because maybe there really were spirits. So people like Houdini and others spent quite a bit of time tracking down these fake mediums who were putting on shows and were completely fraudulent. This overlay then that psychics or mediums are frauds comes us to the present day. This is why skeptics will say the whole thing is fraudulent. Well, no. There were some people posing as as frauds, but that doesn't mean they're all frauds. And in particular, D.D. Home, even as a young man, was showing these special talents. He eventually did thousands of shows, uh, physical mediumship shows with very large tables that were levitated, not in complete darkness, but in light, witnessed by all kinds of people, including skeptics of the day and royalty and everybody else. And more importantly, by magicians, stage magicians who wanted to know how he did his tricks. And so after thousands of people watching him over many decades, there was never anybody who figured out how he did it as a trick. And of course, he, he said, this is not a trick. This is this is for real. I mentioned in, in my book, Real Magic, then, that one of the best biographies that I've read about this was published by a performing magician, who also happens to be a scholar, who wrote his biography about D.D. Holmes. And he gets to the end of the book and he said, well, what do I think about this? Since I'm a magician, a professional stage magician, I know how to do illusions and so on. His answer is he has no idea. Everything we can look at in terms of the historical record, of which there's quite a bit, says this guy was for real. He was never caught in any kind of fraud. It sounds impossible. And yet that is a it's a Merlin level person. I wish we had the DNA of these people because I suspect it would teach us a lot about why they're different. I wish we had some people today who were able to do that kind of thing, like a a St. Joseph of Cupertino and so on. I think we probably do. Yeah. The difference today, though, is that there's no inquisition per se, but if somebody had that ability and decided to go public on YouTube, A, nobody would believe it because we have deep fake movies and you can't tell who's what anymore. Uh, so most people wouldn't believe it. For people who did believe it, uh, or, or maybe they witnessed it firsthand, uh, some of them would get would drop it immediately and just deny that they even saw it because it's too freakish. 
others will start following him like Christ. He has the power and they're going to want to follow him. So I think that people who are reasonably intelligent would never go public with these these kinds of skills. Although, you know, if there were, if it weren't just one guy, but if there were dozens of such people, if they could somehow collaborate with each other and say, oh, all right, let's all go down to the mall in Washington, D.C., right out in the middle where there's nothing that could be, no, no wires could be strung from anything, and let's all levitate 10 feet off the ground and, and let the media film it. I don't know. That would have an impact if it wasn't just one guy. It would have more of an impact. It would also put their lives in danger. I could think of reasons, but why do you say that? Well, because the the world doesn't like things that are significantly different. I mean, you touch on this in movies like X-Men and other movies, where in order for the magic to work in a safe way, it has to be secret, because other people will freak out. There are people who will get so freaked out that they will try to kill the ones who are showing these special abilities. This is exactly the reason why when the U.S. government had its psychic spying program, Portions of it were top secret to protect the individuals involved from other countries and from people in our own country who just find it demonic and would want to get rid of it. In our last interview, you and I talked about the TM people who you know tried to achieve levitation and no one has achieved it. And the explanation within the TM movement was always, well, world consciousness isn't ready for it. When world consciousness is ready, then we'll be able to do it. It's kind of what you're saying here. It has a slightly different spin on it. It's true. I think world consciousness is part of it. It will put a break on certain kinds of things and allow others. We're talking about mass consciousness as kind of an entity. Collective more, consciousness might be a better yeah, word. It can, it can allow things to happen and it can allow other things not to happen. So that means that there may be people who are doing uh, levitation meditation who find that there's a break, like they're being suppressed. In which case, then the, the collective mind says, okay, now it's all right. Well, then they can do it. And very few people would be freaked out because now it's okay. So that's, that's like an active suppression of it. At the same time, it may be that there are places around the world where people can do that perfectly fine, but it happens to be in, in an ashram somewhere where there's no TV cameras. Yeah, up in the Himalayas or something. But there may yeah, come so, a time. It's, it's kind of like a strength in numbers thing, you know, it, it's still a rarity, but there might come a time when, you know how phase transitions work, you know, water can be one degree short of boiling and look kind of normal, and then one more degree and it starts to boil and bubble. So right. it could be that at some point we might be just that close to a major breakthrough and it'll happen quite unexpectedly. Right. This uh, idea of collective consciousness as a causal mechanism is something, it's one of my projects that I'm working on now. And so it, it what comes, are you doing there? So it comes out of uh, this long-term project that started at Princeton called the Global Consciousness Project. We have random number of generators around the world, and we've been tracking world events for a long time now, 23 years. And the formal experiment was 500 events. That part of the experiment ended in 2015 when we finally reached the 500th event. And the overall result was a seven-sigma deviation from chance. That's associated with odds against chance of so three trillion to one. So very strong evidence that something about large-scale events happening in the world attracts people's attention, and that changes the nature of randomness. It becomes more orderly. That's like a large-scale physical change. But there's two interpretations of that result. A seven-sigma result would be considered a discovery, a, a confident discovery in physics. 
So here, it's not a discovery in physics because we don't have any explanation for it. But it still have two interpretations. One interpretation is that mass consciousness that becomes coherent literally changes aspects of the physical world because consciousness is fundamental. So when a portion of consciousness becomes highly coherent, the physical world that's emerging out of it is going to behave in a different way. We can detect that with the random number generators. So that's a causal interaction. And if we could show that, that would be exceptionally important because then it says that we're we're creating this. We're somehow making the show happen. But the other interpretation is that somebody has to intervene in doing an experiment, right? Somebody is saying, let's do this at this time. Let's choose this particular event to put into our database. That then becomes a human-centric description, which doesn't require causation anymore, right? This is now somebody's intuition or somebody's precognition saying, I think if we use this event, we'll get a good deviation. But if we use that one, we shouldn't. So I'm going to choose this, this one. So somebody had to choose 500 events, and that goes in the database, and then we get the seven sigma result. So we have either a causal active form of consciousness, or we have one that's completely passive, but could still see things in a psychic way, but not doing anything to it. So given that those are the two possibilities, I'm working on a, a, a type of analysis, which I think is showing that it actually is a causal effect. And it's interesting, partially because even Einstein said that God does not play dice with the universe, meaning it's not random at the bottom. Something is causing these deviations to occur. And so with this database, 23 years of data, I think we have the capacity now analytically to show that actually consciousness is pushing the physical world around. Or even in a stronger way, consciousness is making it emerge Incidentally, for those listening, um, in my first interview with Dean, we talked about this quite a bit and taking events such as 9-11 or Princess Diana's death and things like that as examples of things that the whole world's attention was focused on, which made a big difference in random number generator behavior. Was there a third guy? There was D.B. Holm. There was St. Joseph. Yeah, a guy named Ted Owens. Ted Owens claimed that he was able to control the weather and was able to precognize effects uh, and make UFOs show up, all of which he did all of them. Like he'd make a prediction that over San Francisco on this particular time and date, I'm going to make a whole bunch of UFOs show up that are going to end up on being shown on TV within a span of time. And, and it happened. So did he precognize some strange event? Did he make them happen? We we don't know how we did it. Um, He was a strange character, as sometimes these folks are, uh, not particularly easy to get along with. Uh, But you can kind of imagine that if somebody is linked into the world in some peculiar way and is able to do these things quite strong, they're first going to end up with skepticism because nobody's going to believe it. And then they're going to get angry because nobody's going to believe it. And they're going to start doing things to demonstrate what they can do. If you're unlucky, they can really do it. There's one case where he possibly brought down an airliner. Well, that's not good. If you're luckier, then they're just psychotic. And they think they can do it, but they really can't. Uh, My estimate then is that maybe about one in 10 million or one in 100 million people 
have that that level of natural skill. These are not things that they learned how to do. They just did it. So one in a hundred million used to be pretty rare. It's not so rare when we're dealing with almost eight billion people now. That means that there are people out there who very likely have similar skills that we either haven't heard about yet or they're very successful business people or artists or something else. And they are really good at what they do because they have exceptional precognition, they have exceptional insight, they have exceptional something that allows them to become very successful and look normal, but they're not normal. Yeah, sometimes the the best basketball players almost look like they're levitating. (laughs) Michael Jordan, he used to sort of do this thing where he would go towards the basket and it would seem like he went up even more without even touching the ground. And then, but who knows? Um, What you said about that Ted Owens guy brings up an interesting point, which is that we can't just assume that the emergence of these kinds of abilities means you're going to use them for good, which of course is depicted in all of the science fiction movies. There's Darth Vader and people like that. So, you know, when I'm saying that oh, if consciousness were just more enlivened and awakened, the whole world would be transformed and all of our problems would go away. I guess we really have to consider whether the enlivenment of consciousness to a significant degree among billions of people would result in some of those people actually becoming more powerfully evil. Yeah. Part of the what I talk in one of the uh, last chapters in the book is what would happen if we figured out a way, one way or the other, that would suddenly become super psychic. What would happen? And it would be a disaster. It would be a complete disaster. Because if egos are not in check, you will end up with a whole planet full of Darth Vaders. Because we're talking about something which is essentially a kind of power, and power is seductive, and some people will go to the dark side and other people won't. And there's probably continual seductive pressure to use it for what a magician would call black magic, which is interfering with somebody else's free will. I think that that's another reason why I think we we need to be a more advanced species, a more mature species, to be able to handle this level of power without without ending up destroying ourselves. And to make it very pragmatic, you can think that you're driving on the highway and somebody cuts you off and you have to work quickly to avoid an accident or something. You're you're angry. Even a long-term meditator is going to be angry for a moment. Well, if you have the ability to do things... That anger, that whim for a short period of time could act as blowing up the other car. Yeah. Well, that would not be good. The, there are stories like that in the Vedic literature. There was one story, for instance, where this sage was deep in samadhi. Some king comes up and asks him a question, and uh, he doesn't respond. And the king th- thinks he's being rude and insulting him. So he, there happens to be a dead snake lying nearby. The king puts it up and picks it up and drapes it around his shoulders. And then after a while, the sage's son comes home, and he's a great yogi, and he's developed all this power and he sees this insult that has been inflicted upon his father and he said whoever did this will die of snake bite in a week and once he said it and there's so many stories like this that once someone like that has said such a thing whatever they speak is truth it has to happen so his father was horrified when he realized his son had said this and so the word gets back to the king and the king believes it and he said i shouldn't have insulted that sage i deserve to die in a week 
let me make the best use of my time over the next weeks. So Shukadeva came along and narrated the Srimad Bhagavatam to him and got him enlightened by the end of the week. And then he got bit by a snake and died. But anyway, there are a lot of stories like that where a, a sage with a certain level of shakti or power, whatever he speaks or says will become true. And there are many instances where they curse somebody and then they regret it a second later. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine uh, two billion people on earth who had that ability. Road rage would take on a whole new meaning, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, and and they didn't go through the first, what, three or four stages of classical yoga to get their egos in check and ethics and so on. Yeah, the yamas and the niyamas and all that. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. And perhaps that's why we don't generally see these abilities to any great degree in most of us and in most people. Perhaps they will emerge spontaneously and naturally when we have achieved the requisite level of maturity in every sense of that word, spiritual mm-hmm. and emotional and ethical and, and so on. But it's for our own good that they they are not emerging when we're still relatively stunted. Yeah, but that said, my estimate is around 0.5% of the population is naturally talented in these domains. They may be practicing psychics. I suspect most of them are not, but they have the capacity at least to be highly successful at what they do. Some will end up in psychiatric institutions because they, they're diagnosed as being schizophrenic or something. And some of them may end up like Elon Musk or somebody who, you know, I don't know about him, but these visionaries, Steve Jobs or whatever, who just have this intuition to go this way or go that way. And, and it ends up transforming the culture because of their, their, their insights. Yeah, yeah. People who are highly successful in entertainment and business – In fact, uh, one time I gave a talk at the Naval War College, and there were a couple of submariners, commanders of submarines in in the audience. I had originally, before I was talking to military audiences, I didn't think that they were going to be very uh, open to the kinds of things I was talking about. But it turns out they're extremely open to it because they would not be in the positions that they have gotten to without really exceptional intuition. The submariners were telling me stories that happened when they're submerged, about psychic connections with people at home, which they were able to to verify later, they're using it. They're using some natural ability that the average person may not have. But as you can see, it'd be quite useful for somebody in a submarine. Yeah. All right. We've covered quite a bit. Chapter 8, which we haven't really covered. Maybe we could just take a few minutes on that. The metaphysical foundations of science, the, the knowledge hierarchies that science uses to carve up reality into separate disciplines why all of this leads to a new worldview that's consistent with with both science and magic. Right. So what I'm referring to there is thought leaders in physics and the neurosciences today who are trying to come up with comprehensive models of the nature of reality. You can see this in the books that they write and the articles that are being produced. You see a couple of themes. One of the themes is that the universe is not made up of matter and energy, It's made up out of information, whether it's classical information or quantum information or something like that. Well, that's one step closer to an esoteric idea, which is that the universe is made up of symbols. Symbols are information. So this is beginning to sound much more like a form of consciousness than it is like a grand machine. The universe is a grand thought, not a grand machine. And this is the leading edge now in in mainstream science. Even within mainstream neuroscience, you find people like Christoph Koch, who's one of the leaders, thought leaders in neuroscience, and he's already saying 
that he thinks consciousness is fundamental, that it, it, it can't derive it from anything else. So, and you, you look at, at the landscape at the, the edge of what's known, what I'm seeing anyway, is a movement towards what I would see as an esoteric worldview, except it's coming with new tools and language. So it's, it's like taking stories that somebody came up with and saying, oh, you know what? The narrative is correct. Well, we now understand it at a pretty deep level in a way that they never, they didn't know. They didn't have the mathematics and the other instruments, but the narrative was right. So that's what I meant then by saying that there's something like a synthesis happening, even though the, the language is not, the, the language hasn't intertwined yet because you don't want to be a professional physicist and saying that what you're doing is magic. That wouldn't work too well. Nevertheless, you look at the equations that people use and the, the mathematics, after all, is a symbolic language. So something about the symbolic language that the brain presumably came up with, but probably more than the brain, a symbolic language that describes the way the physical world works to an exquisitely good degree. So I forget now, it's either like 12 to 14 decimal places in terms of describing how precise you can make a prediction based on quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is not the end of physics, it's, it's the beginning of physics. So at some point, we will have obscure equations that you need a lifetime to learn what it means that is actually describing the nature of the physical world and allows you to predict how to make it different. So you, know, you step back from science and you step back from the mythology and the esoteric lore, and at least what I'm seeing, this is what I, although I expressed it in the book, was they're going in the same direction. This is a convergence. It's not a divergence. That's why I, sometimes people will then say, well, why would you're interested in this old ancient superstitious stuff? That sounds like a regression to the past. No, it's taking ideas from the past and combining it with ideas from the present and saying that they're actually a lot closer than most people think. That might be a good conclusion right there. I was, I was going to say, you know, what could you say as a conclusion for the non-scientific listener, since most of us aren't scientists, but you kind of just said it. I mean, the implications for all of us, we don't have to be scientists to um, benefit from the practicalities of, of what you're studying. Maybe you can just utter another sentence or two just to wrap it up, uh, but along the lines of what I'm bumblingly trying to say here. I think you said it earlier in a, a way that I wanted to borrow, which was that the, the reason why you would do science in the domain of consciousness is to figure out who and what we are and to test whether the idea that we live in a nihilistic universe is correct. So if there's any evidence that we are not living in a random universe that's completely pointless and you can get there rationally without having to dive into religion, that would help everyone because it would change the way that we behave. In a nihilistic universe, the winner is the one who ends up with the most toys. And that's it. Like That's the end of that story. There's nothing else there. So in that case, even virtue is not its own reward. There's no reward in this. So if it turns out, though, that we live in a universe that is purposeful or even one where consciousness plays an active role or anything like that, that's a very different story that we start telling. Yeah. And that's not just theory. I mean, there are plenty of people who have matured to a great degree spiritually who never for a second you know, regard the universe as nihilistic or accidental or 
meaningless or anything else. Their whole life is just overflowing with, with meaning and significance and fulfillment all the time. That's the hope for every human being. Yeah, it's like the, the essence of every mystical experience. The person comes back and tries to express the, in, in the, the ineffable in millions of words. They <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> yeah. But it, that's the same story again. You get a sense that the universe is a living thing that does have purpose and meaning. And we are tiny, tiny little reflection of that. Except that we can be hypnotized into thinking that we're just machines made out of meat. Yeah. We in our individual expression are tiny little reflections. We in our, in our true nature are actually the totality. Well, that's why I was talking about the quantum brain. Right. See, the, the quantum brain, is, even as a metaphor, there's a physical object in there. It's acting in a particulate way. But it also has wave-like characteristics, potentials that spread out through all space and time. And I think we, we are both of those. So... This is somewhere between a metaphor and an analogy and maybe even literal. I think we're moving away from the story of it and actually towards a literal way of thinking about it. Good. That's a good stopping point. All right. Well, thanks, Dean. Really appreciated talking to you again. I always enjoy hearing your talks at, at the SAND conference, and these conversations have been great. Reading your books have been, has been a lot of fun. So thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. Okay, and I'll, I'll see you on Facebook, and all those people will be piling on you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> Let them pile. So thanks to those who have been listening or watching. We will see you at, for the next one. Please go to batgap.com and explore the menus, and you might want to sign up for some things like the email or the audio podcast or whatever. Bye. Bye, Dean.